this afternoon, I want to examine the parallel between pride as a type of leaven. We're going to examine the leavening effect that pride has in our lives and understand how we must put it away. Pride, like leaven, is something that puffs up. Pride is, in short, an opinion of one's self that is too high, that is more than it should be, that is elevated above what is true. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs is, or pride rather, is something that, as we will see, God does not like. In Proverbs chapter 6, in verse 16, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift and running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. Pride here, contrary to what many in society believe, in society we see this idea that is prevalent, that pride is a good thing, that we should be filled with pride. And yet, when we look at the company in which pride is listed here, we see that it's listed among some absolutely wretched things. Pride is something that God says is an abomination to Him. It's listed here among, right up next to, hands that shed innocent blood. When we think about the other elements in this list of things that God finds abominable, it really gives us a a great sense of how much God dislikes pride, how serious pride is to Him. Let's turn on over to James chapter 4. In James, the fourth chapter, we'll notice something very important about Pride. In, Pro- in James chapter 4 and verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We're told that God resists the proud. Brethren, we study our Bible. We obey God. 
so that when we cry out to Him, that He will hear us. And we read right here that God resists the proud. If you were going to write a book on how to make sure that God does not hear your prayer, we see that God resists the proud. You know, certainly none of us want God to resist us. We need Him. We depend on Him. And we look to Him. And we see that in order for God to respond to us, to hear our cry, to direct our steps, to give us wisdom and insight and guidance and mercy, that we must make sure that pride is not standing in the way. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. We read in verse 18 that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride precedes destruction. That when you see destruction, if you rewind and look before, you'll see pride. That it, there is a role that pride plays in destruction. The concept in the world around that pride is something that we should be filled with. That it motivates us to do great things. We see here the truth. That pride is something that goes before destruction. You've heard the phrase, someone being referred to as blinded by pride, that pride prevents our being able to see things or see situations clearly. Pride is, can have an intoxicating effect. When a person is intoxicated, they're, they're not thinking clearly. The frontal lobe of the brain, the area where intellect decisions are made, the area that helps us distinguish between right and wrong. When a person is intoxicated, that area is numbed. And pride certainly can have the same effect. That intoxicating effect that keeps us from seeing clearly from being able to really distinguish between what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 11. In Proverbs chapter 11, in verse 2, 
we read that when pride comes, then comes shame. It's interesting, the little picture that's painted here with words. It's like when pride arrives on the scene, then comes shame. That before pride arose, before there was pride, there wasn't shame. Now, why is that the case? We looked earlier and saw that pride precedes destruction. And certainly shame is involved in destruction. The aftermath, it describes the aftermath of destruction. There are two ways that we can learn. Two ways that we do learn. We learn by instruction or we learn by experience. And as we read God's Word and we study God's Word, we see very clearly that pride is something that is extremely dangerous. We can look around us in society, we see that it is prevalent, and yet the Bible tells us that it is not only something that God hates, that it has a great destructive impact on lives that are filled with it. That when pride comes, destruction follows, there is shame. This describes what happens when pride is allowed to go unchecked. That if pride were recognized in advance, if pride were put away, these terrible things, the destructive power result, could be avoided, could be averted. Let's turn on over to Proverbs 13, and we'll notice one more element about pride. One more effect that it has. In Proverbs chapter 13, in verse 10, we read that by pride comes nothing but strife. The King James says only by pride comes contention. That pride produces strife. And when you see strife, and when you see contention, when you see divisions, there is a role that pride plays. That's something that we should think about. We recognize that pride is something that God hates. And as we recognize that, then that means that we try to remove it from our lives where we see it, where we can identify it. We try to overcome it, to put it away. Just like we've searched our homes and our dwellings for leaven to put it away. And yet, it's hard to see clearly our own selves. We remember Jeremiah 17.9, that the heart is deceitful. We all recognize that pride is something that we should avoid, that 
If it goes unchecked, it carries a terrible price. And yet seeing pride within ourselves is something that is very hard to do. But verse 10 gives us a little window of opportunity. Because where we see strife, where we have friction with others, from the Bible we understand that there is a role that pride plays in that. It gives us the opportunity to to recognize a warning sign so that we can check pride and not allow it to run our lives. There are many examples of pride in the Bible. Let's turn and notice in 1 Samuel chapter 9. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to look at the example of Saul. Now let's pick this up in verse 15 of 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15. Now the Lord had told Samuel in it. Uh, that day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from, from the hand of the Philistines. For I have looked upon my people, because their cry has come to me. Now, you'll remember that the people had rejected Samuel and his sons, because Samuel's sons did not follow as Samuel had followed. And so the people had rejected them as their ruler and demanded a king like the other nations. And so they are about to get their wish. So God tells Samuel to expect someone the following day. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. And as for your donkeys, that was the purpose of Saul coming this way. He was looking for his father's donkeys. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on all your father's house? Notice the next verse, Saul's response. It shows an attitude. 
Saul answered, verse 21, and said, Am I not a Benjamite, and of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Saul's response was not, Well, I'm glad you noticed. Saul's response is, Who am I? You know, I come from a low family in a small tribe. And here you've invited me to, to go up and eat in this high place and you're uh, making these comments. So Samuel took Saul up and had this honor prepared that there were these some 30 people that had been invited to come and to eat together. And Samuel had specified that the choice portion was to be reserved for the one that he was going to show this great honor. And so Saul comes, and it was for Saul. And then the next day, We read of that in verse in chapter ten and verse one. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him and said, "Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance?" And then he goes on to tell Saul what to expect and what will happen going forward. What we read about here is someone who. Saul was afforded was accorded this great honor. And at this point in time he has an attitude of humility. And yet when we fast forward to chapter fifteen Chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep and camel and donkey. So Samuel, or Saul rather, numbered the people. 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. So he assembles his army and he goes out. And in verse 7, Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. 
It's interesting that they say that we're told that they saved all that was good. You know, whose definition of good? (laughs) God had condemned all of this to be destroyed. And yet, as they came through, they didn't really follow what God had told them to do. God had given them some very specific instructions. And then in verse 11, we read that God told Saul, or Samuel rather, that he was grieved with Saul and was going to reject him then as king over his people. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told, uh, so Samuel found out that Saul was coming. Verse 13, Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Well, that's rather interesting because we had just read how little he had performed of that commandment. Verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them up from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. So he didn't follow God's instruction. And yet he tells here Samuel, or Samuel that he had. And when he's called on the carpet about it, he defends his actions. He explains how they really did obey. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Verse 17, Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? God points out here, through Samuel, this distinction between the way that His attitude is now, and the attitude was when he was originally anointed king over Israel, that when you were little in your own eyes, before you became filled with pride, we read earlier how pride precedes destruction, and how when pride comes, then shame follows. We see that played out right here in the life of Saul. He wasn't someone who was originally filled with pride, and yet over the course of time made certain mistakes and allowed himself to become filled with pride. Just like leaven, it takes just a little bit to get started. And then it will grow and multiply and multiply. And certainly we can see here in the example of 
King Saul. That while he was humble, God chose him to work through him to accomplish something. To do a work. To fill a purpose that God had in mind for him. And yet, when he became filled with pride, the result was that he became unfit then for his intended purpose. God thrust him away. God took the kingdom away from him because he had allowed this pride. In looking at this exchange between Samuel and between Saul, it's amazing that as Saul is told, you didn't listen to what God told you to do, the very next thing out of his mouth is, yes, I did. Let me explain. Here's how, here's how I was obeying God. Clearly intoxicated by pride. Unable to see clearly. Certainly couldn't see himself clearly and couldn't see how he had not done what God had told him to do. Let's take a look at another example of pride in action. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 5. Second Kings chapter five. We'll pick up begin the story in verse one. Now Haman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And he was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus says the girl who is from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and other treasure besides to bring a gift there. And so he brings this letter to the king of Israel. And the letter in verse 6 says, Be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you that you may heal him of his leprosy. 
Verse 7, And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Now, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Just a side point, notice that the servant that was taken captive from Israel, she was somebody who uh, had a relationship with God, had faith, and yet the king who was left behind in Israel was someone who had forgotten God. And here he receives Naaman, and he is greatly distressed. To his confused outlook, he thinks this looks like a setup. I can't heal this guy. And Elisha sent a messenger to him uh, saying to send him to him. Verse 9, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. In the very next verse, But Naaman became furious. Here he traveled all this way. He's got all this treasure. Certainly great anticipation and excitement that he's about to be rid of this leprosy. And he goes and appears before the king. And the king says, well, actually, you need to go over here. And so he goes over there. And we read that Elisha sent his servant out. Elisha didn't come before him. Elisha sends his servant out, tells him to go and wash. And man. Is Naaman mad? Indeed, verse 11. Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and will and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. So in his mind, he had it all figured out. He was going to come here and stand, and it, you know, here he was, a great and impressive person. A person with great power, with great authority. And he was going to have this be miraculously healed, and so he had kind of imagined how God was going to heal him. There was going to be this great, big, showy thing. And yet, instead... Here comes the servant. Go down there and, and, and wash. Nothing could have been further from his expectation than, than what he actually received. Are not the, verse 12, are not the Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Here he is just blinded by rage. He's absolutely furious. He's gone all this way. 
and here the guy wants him to, to take a dip in this dinky old muddy river. Well, he's got bigger rivers, more impressive rivers back home. And his servants came near and spoke to him, verse 13, and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? The servant came and helped him to have a fresh perspective. You know, you came here expecting to do whatever he told you. And if he had given you some great monumental task, you would have set out to carry it out. Shouldn't you be glad then that he told you something easy? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Here we see a near miss. Because of pride, he expected things to happen in a certain way. And the way he was treated didn't match with the way he saw himself. Didn't think that that was fitting of a man of his stature, of a man of his authority and standing. And as a result, he was prepared to turn his back and certainly would have missed out on being healed. He did heed wise counsel. And his servant came and helped him to see. It's interesting, the story of Naaman. Naaman, when he came back, he was healed. He wanted to give a present. And Elisha said, no. You know, the healing is from God. He wasn't going to receive a presence. And so Naaman then asked for two mule loads of dirt so that he could go back home. And when he uh, sacrifices or, or, or makes offering, that he can uh, do so on to this God. And he also asks uh, that God would please overlook the fact that he will still need to go into the pagan temple with his master, the king. A little bit of interesting to to see Naaman. But notice the role that pride played in his life and how it almost cost him the, the rare opportunity to be healed of leprosy. You know, something that he would have physically not let anything stand in the way of. And yet his pride almost prevented him from what was within grasp. Let's turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel. We'll notice another great example of pride. 
In Daniel chapter 1, we read about how God gave the king of Judah into King Nebuchadnezzar's hand. So he conquered it, brought back servants of whom Daniel was one. We read about a dream in chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had. A dream that perplexed him. A dream that he demanded the answer for. And none except Daniel was able to give it him. So Daniel explains this dream. That there was a God in heaven, there is a God in heaven, who reveals the secrets of men. And makes these things known. And so... He then describes for King Nebuchadnezzar the image that the king had seen in this dream. This image of this great, impressive man. And then he goes on to describe the interpretation or the meaning of that dream. In Daniel chapter 2 and verse 36... This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Verse 37, You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. And after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And so then he goes on to describe these successive kingdoms. And King Nebuchadnezzar and his government represent that head of gold. Then in chapter 3 we read about this great impressive statue that King Nebuchadnezzar erected commanded all those to come and bow down to it. And then in chapter 4, we read of another dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has. Chapter 4, verse 10. These were the visions of my head while on my bed I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches. And all the flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed there was a watcher and a holy one. Coming down from heaven, he cried aloud and said, Yes, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Lest... 
Let the beasts get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze. And the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beasts, and on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. Let seven times pass over him. This decision is by decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. So now he wants an explanation then for this dream. And Daniel comes and explains to King Nebuchadnezzar, that this too was a dream about him. That he was that great and glorious strong tree. And as he describes what then will happen. Verse 24, O king, this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from, from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, And they shall make you eat grass like the oxen. They shall make you wet with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So as a result of King Nebuchadnezzar's great pride and great arrogance, God was about to humble him. And God showed him in a dream beforehand what was going to happen. He was warned by Daniel and told how he could possibly avert that destruction or that great calamity. But in verse 28, we read that all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months He was walking about the the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power for the honor of my majesty? And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. So here he is lifted up in his pride as he looks out at what he had accomplished. But as we read in chapter 1, or noticed in chapter 1, it was God who gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It was God who appointed King Nebuchadnezzar and used him to carry out God's purpose 
And Nebuchadnezzar became filled with pride. And notice that although he had been warned of what was going to happen, within a year, he had completely forgotten the warning, the admonition. You know, a year ago he heard this and he was scared. And most likely initially made steps to heed Daniel's admonition. And then quickly reverted to his old ways. Let's turn to Esther, the book of Esther. In Esther, in the book of Esther, we read of another man whose life stands as a great warning of what happens when pride goes unchecked. In chapter 3 of Esther, we read about how King Azarias had promoted Haman. Verse 1, and had advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants who were with within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So Haman is promoted within the kingdom. And as he comes and goes around the palace, all those that he comes in contact with bow before him, except Mordecai. Mordecai, when he's asked about it, lets it be known that he... uh, essentially fears God and is not going to bow before anyone other than the God of heaven. Haman could have just let it go. But as is often the case with pride, something that really isn't that significant takes on a much greater importance Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for he had told him of the people. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias the people of Mordecai. An amazing story 
of the ends to which a person will go when they are ruled by pride. Here's one guy who's not bowing down to him. And his reaction is that he is going to not just kill this man, he's going to kill this man and all that are like him throughout the whole land. The the disproportion between his wrath and the perceived grievance is astounding. You know, where's the equity? And yet that's a hallmark of being ruled by pride. Because when a person is ruled by pride, things that really are insignificant and should be insignificant in the overall scheme of things take on a great level of importance. Because something that that injures a person's pride. You're all familiar with the story of Haman. As a result of of his being filled with wrath over one person refusing to bow down to him, Haman lost his life. Haman and his family. The, The pit that he had dug for Mordecai was the pit that he himself was swallowed up in. In fact, the gallows that he had prepared especially for Mordecai. He hung on those gallows. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We began by looking at the significance of pride and, and the, how God views it, the effect that it produces on those that have it or filled with it. We've noticed various examples of what happens when a person allows pride to guide them. Now we're going to notice a warning that perhaps hits closer to home. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, Moses is telling the Israelites as they prepare to enter the promised land, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. So Moses recounts their experience in being led out of Egypt. Here as they prepare to take and receive this promised land, this blessing that God had promised to them as a result of their forefather Abraham's obedience.
Verse 5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land in whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Brethren, this describes the land that we live in, that God has given to us as a result of Abraham's obedience and his promise to Abraham. And notice the admonition that comes with it. Verse 10, When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments, His judgments, and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwelled in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up, that you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. This admonition that Moses delivered to Israel so long ago was one that ancient Israel did not heed and modern Israel has not heeded. And we have enjoyed the abundance and yet Moses recorded this admonition that when they have eaten and are filled, Beware that you do not forget the Lord by keeping His commandments and His judgments. Lest when you are eaten and are full, your heart is lifted up. There is a connection between abundance and pride. And God, through Moses, Spells it out for the Israelites. So that when they had this abundance, what were they supposed to do? Give thanks to God. Serve God. Remember God. And yet, what was the danger? The danger was that they would forget God. And in forgetting God, they would be puffed up. Their heart would be lifted up. Because the connection between their abundance and the source was something that was forgotten. And as we look around us today, 
and the abundance that our nation has enjoyed and the great blessings. And we see those blessings being removed. And certainly, we do, that pains us to see the suffering. Because our people have forgotten God. And their heart has been lifted up with a, because of the abundance they have forgotten where it came from. Let's turn to Second Timothy chapter 3. Our nation has forgotten the source of its blessings. When our nation was founded, there was an understanding that God was the source of those blessings. And yet now, today, it seems that every effort that can be made is being made to remove God from Various aspects of our public life. We're told in election times in particular that what a person does in their private life is their own business. This we see in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Know this, in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of their own selves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, Traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This not only was something that characterized society at Paul's time at the end of the age of that age. It is something that as we look around today, these things could easily be written today of the society that we live in. We notice how prominently pride is featured in this list of things that are all around us. And not only that, when we turn over to Revelation chapter 3, we read here a description of what society is like at the end of the age. In Revelation chapter 3, we read about the last of the church eras. The Laodicean era. An era that a particular attitude is exhibited in. In chapter 3, verse 14, 
And the and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, often when we read this passage about the Laodicean era, and when we think about the Laodicean attitude, we think of a lukewarm attitude. Something that lacks zeal. And certainly, that is described here. But I want to focus on the another aspect. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Laodiceans are characterized as seeing themselves as being rich, increased with goods, being without need, and yet Christ says that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In other words, the Laodiceans have a view of themselves that is too high. They are puffed up. Their self-image is far out of touch with reality. Brethren, that's the attitude that is extant in the body of Christ at the end of the age. That's an attitude that as we read, we certainly don't want to be found in us. And yet the warnings are clear. This attitude of pride is something that is all around in society. And it is something that even permeates the church, the body of Christ at the end of the age. This pride, this self-assurance. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 8. Proverbs chapter 8. Verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way, and the perverse mouth I hate. To fear God is to hate the things that God hates. Certainly we know that God hates pride. As we 
Strive to fear God. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. As we seek to fear God in the right way, we have to come to absolutely hate the things that God hates. Not find amusement in. Not enjoy being around. But to hate. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God gives some instructions. These instructions were for the king. They were instructions about not doing certain things. And they were also instructions to do certain things. The king was to not multiply certain things to himself. Is not to multiply horses, not to multiply wives, not to multiply great material wealth, silver and gold. What was the king to do? Verse 18, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life. So he's to have God's word, and he's to read it all the days of his life. Why? Verse 19, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. It's interesting here that Bible study, studying God's Word daily, is something that God prescribes as a way to keep from being lifted up. That because of his position, we all deal with pride, look for it in our own lives, and try to overcome it where we see it. And because of the king's position, he was going to have more opportunity for pride than perhaps you and I. And yet the antidote, the thing that would keep him from it, applies to you and I today. Let's turn to one more passage, James chapter 1. In order to overcome 
pride, we have to study God's Word daily. It will keep us from being lifted up with pride. In James 1 and verse 17, we read a very important principle that when we understand this, helps us stay away from pride. We read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Everything that we have is from God. Everything that's good, that's of value. Where, when we understand that, where's the opportunity for being puffed up with whatever possessions we've been given? Because we understand that they have been given to us by our Father in heaven. When we're able to accomplish things, is it really our own? No. God is one that gave us the ability. God is the one who gives us His Spirit to guide us, to direct us. It's His Word that we look to as a source of wisdom. As we understand this, the result of whatever we have or whatever we accomplish is one of thankfulness to the source and a desire to serve Him with all of our heart, to love Him, to please Him. Brethren, when we understand the significance of being puffed up with pride, we must earnestly seek to put it out of our lives. As we look around in society and we look at the, the admonition that we read in Revelation, the warning. We must not be blind to the role that pride plays in our own thoughts and our own actions. But we must seek God and seek to define our lives by a love of God and not a love of self. Verse 